Good morning. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. Let's begin by entering into prayer together. Heavenly Father, we once again come here in honor and awe of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you gave him to us when we were still your enemies, and that he went to the cross for us and died for our sins. And that you raised him three days later, so that we would all know that he is God in the flesh, and we know when we believe in him, we're justified and receive eternal life. And so we thank you every time, Father, we get together for that. It's the most amazing gift of all time. Father, today we also pray for the persecuted church. We, we stand with them. We ask that you would inspire us and motivate us to do whatever we can for them. And we also pray this morning, Father, that you would have the Holy Spirit guide and direct our hearts and our minds as we hear your word. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Good morning once again. Just want to give you a couple of announcements before we get started. Every month, as most of you know, we do bring to our attention a different missionary organization. This month, we have been looking at Grace Bible Church Pakistan. We have a a great personal relationship with Fazl John and Carrie, his wife. And if you remember, most years we we have... uh, donated to their Christmas giving to their children over there. We'll do that again this year. And um, we saw an unforgettable video about what life is really like. I, I, uh, I know this is a t- difficult picture, but it's important to remember the conditions that our brothers and sisters are living under um, in, in, in Pakistan. And as a matter of fact, um, I put this... Uh, this picture in my prayer list, so that whenever I pray for them, I'm reminded of the reality that they're going through. So, and I encourage you to also keep that in mind. This is their website, www.gbcpakistan.org. www.gbcpakistan.org. Once again, I do want to remind you that we have a prayer session every Thursday after our Bible study, and uh, we pray for the things that our people ask us to. And so we'll pray for you, what you would like us to pray for, as long as we know about it. And there's two ways that you can let us know. Um, One is there is a a box in the foyer where you can fill out a piece of paper with your prayer request and put it in there. Or you can go on our website, and on on the first page of the website, there's that button that you can click on and then type it in. So either way, I do encourage you to do that. Prayer is powerful. We see that all the time in our midst, and we want that power to, to, get, to get to work in our hearts going out to you, whatever it is that you might be going through or somebody that you love or care about. title of today's message comes from the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, and it's this, Has Christ Been Divided? Has Christ Been Divided? That comes because Paul is really worked up about something that is going on in that church. Something that was reported to him by a household that came from Corinth to Ephesus and reported things that made Paul conclude that there were terrible divisions in this church. And at this point, when he is describing those things, he turns to sarcasm, actually. He turns and he says, listen, here's the conclusion. The way you're living, the way you think about things... It would, it would draw this question, as ridiculous as it is, it would draw the conclusion of that question. Has Christ been divided? And of course the answer is no. But they're certainly looking like that in the way they're living together, or not together. Well, in my studies uh, lately in, in 1 Corinthians, I've been searching for the unifying theme to the letter. Most, if not all, of Paul's letters have that. The book of Ephesians is about the body of Christ as a unit. We saw in the book of Colossians that that the the, the real unifying theme of that was the glory of Jesus Christ. And yet it's hard in the book of 1 Corinthians. I think, remember last week when we went through the outline, it's really a series of problems and sinfulness and fleshly behavior that's going on. And it's just chapters about this problem, this chapters about that problem. But when you have that kind of thing, it's very difficult to sort of say, well, what's the overall picture? 
Well, thankfully, Paul tells us, and, and, and it's where he, he will insert the where he wants to bring them back to. Again and again, after he's dealt with the problem, he's like, now here's why that's a problem, because you really need to be over here. You need to be living this way. You need to have your mindset on what God's purpose is for you. So we really sometimes have to look in another direction besides what's going on with the people, besides the direct um, rebukes that Paul is giving to this church, and we need to look at it from God's point of view. And we have to ask a question. Here's the question. What goal did God have when he inspired Paul to write 1 Corinthians? Because he did. Every word in the Greek text was inspired by the Holy Spirit. You know, the Greek word is God breathed, theopneustos. God breathed every word, and God the Holy Spirit did. And the question is, why? Why did he have Paul go through this series? Now, we know at a human level that Paul had heard about this, and he was really aghast. He couldn't believe this, all these things were going on. But at the same time, he was inspired by God to write this letter, and we have to ask why. You see, what was at stake was infinitely more important than simply rebuking sinning Christians. Don't get me wrong, that's a lot of fun and all that. No, I'm just kidding. But the, but the fact is that there's something bigger than that. Bigger, 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 bigger. And so God's purpose in the letter is to restore and reunite the saints. Now that in alone is a wonderful thing. But that's not really the end result. That is a, that is a stage in what God really wants to bring about and change by restoring and reuniting the saints, particularly from their divisions, but also from their sinful and fleshly behavior. So then we have to say, okay, so what comes after the so that? And we're going to let the letter answer that question. I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. By the way, I really encourage everybody to be reading the letter of 1 Corinthians. It's a big letter, a lot bigger than Colossians, or James for that matter. The last two books we were in. But as, but as with every book, it's so important that you gain a familiarity, that you gain so that when you see references, like I'm going to do today, I'm going to refer to some things later on in the book, then it clicks and you say, oh, I see the relationship now. That happens when you read it. It's no, reading isn't a substitute, of course, for us gathering together and hearing the Word of God, but it is a supplement to that. And I encourage all of you to do that. Um, because we'll be moving through this uh, much, more, much more quickly than we move through Colossians. Now, the reason for that is quite simple. If I took the same pace in 1 Corinthians as I did in Colossians, we'd be here till the election after the 2020 election, so... <laughs> you know, we have to go, and, and I'm excited actually to go through it at a, at a, at a uh, taking more at a time and saying, what does this whole part of this letter mean? So that's what we're going to do. Well, it turns out that God, and we saw this uh, when we saw the ways in which the Lord through Paul was making sure we understood that these were brethren, these were saints, these were those who have been justified. Again and again, in the first part of the letter, he tells us that. And in, other, in other words, he has poured the full measure of his grace in so many ways into those saints at Corinth. And the question again is, you know, why? What, for what purpose did he do that? Well, let's read 1 Corinthians 4, 1, rather, 1 Corinthians 1, 4 to 9 together. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus. Make no mistake that the grace of God that pours into our lives is there because of Christ, because of what he did for us on the cross and because we're in union with him. We're his body. And so the grace that being poured into our lives far exceeds anything that is ever done in the Old Testament. All right. It's because it's not because we're any better as people. We're believe me, we're we're just as sinful, just as fleshly without Christ as the saints in the in the Old Testament were without him. So that's not it. What is it is that God has saw fit, seen fit in this period after the ascension of Christ to bring about a body that would be his son's body on earth and forever. 
And so that body um, is graced out, and we're just the recipients of that because we're members of that body. In any event, verse 4 again, I thank my God always, always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ, the gospel, was confirmed in you. So that you are not lacking in any gift. You are awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you, who will also confirm you to the end. That's important to see that statement, because there's no conditions, are there? That is what we call the indicative mood in the Greek. In other words, this is a statement of fact. There's no conditions. God will confirm you and I to the end. He's got an end result. He's going to bring us there. He works all things together for good to get us there. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of men the things that God has prepared that are the end of the race for those who love Him. So He will Confirm us to the end. What does that mean? As hard as it is to imagine about me and about actually what I learn about the saints in Corinth, it means that on the day, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, we will be blameless. We will stand before the Lord and before the Father, and we will understand and see what it meant when God the Father justified us the moment we believed, declared us righteous. The fact that He has put our sins as far as the east is from the west, from us and from Him. We'll we'll see what that's all about because we will stand there blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Verse 9. The reason why we will stand blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, the reason we can await eagerly His revelation, the reason that we will be confirmed to the end is because God is Faithful. Right. In other words, what he has said, he will do. And he will do it despite us if he has to. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And I hope you heard that this morning. Because that's true of you and I. We have also been called into fellowship with the son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. And God has enriched the saints in everything. I want you to notice, especially in all speech and all knowledge in the case of the saints at Corinth. And God is, and Paul is given thanks for this bestowal of God's grace. He's thankful that they've received and been enriched in all things, especially in the gift of speech and knowledge. Even though, he's thankful even though right now in their lives, These saints were totally abusing those gifts. They were using them for the wrong purpose. They were using them for their own selfishness, their own fleshly desires. That's why there were rivalries and jealousies among the saints. And by the way, that was the absolute opposite outcome from the one that God desired when He gave them those gifts. Because as chapter 12 will, will teach us, He gave them so that the body would be united. And yet they were using it for the opposite. And even despite all of that, Paul could still stand there and be thankful that God has given them those gifts. Why? Because God is faithful. Despite what's going on right now, God sees the end from the beginning. Well, Paul had the vision about that, and he realized too that no matter how bad things looked at Corinth, God will be, is faithful, and they will stand blameless in the day of Christ Jesus. And they will be confirmed to the end. In other words, God takes the long view. I mean, isn't that great that we take the short view, right? I mean, we typically are, you know, just dealing with and thinking about what's going on in our life today. And in a way, that's really what God expects. Because he said, you know, Jesus said each day has enough trouble of its own. But God isn't bound by any of that. He sees the end from the beginning, from the moment. From the moment you believed in Christ, in fact, in eternity past, for that matter, he knew that he had elected you to privilege and that he had predestined. In other words, he had planned out the whole route to get you where he wanted you to be. So he saw that. He's always seen that. 
And that's always how He sees us. He sees us in Christ. He sees us perfect. And so, so He's not worried. God doesn't worry. You know, he, but He is faithful. And He will do what He has to do, by the way, to get us there. By the way, with that in mind, with the grace of God as being really what is at work, and with the fact that God is faithful, and that it's all based on the fact that we're in Jesus Christ our Lord, you see, what that does is give all the glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what exactly was not going on, by the way, in Corinth at the time. Everyone wanted their own piece of the glory for themselves. And so Paul, Paul is saying to them, listen, take God's view, but at the same time, deal with what's going on. Because that's an obstacle to where God wants to take you. He will take you. But you see, when we put obstacles up in God's way of getting us to where he wants us to go, guess what he has to do? He has to attack and destroy those obstacles. And when those obstacles are in our lives and how we're living and in our hearts, guess what he has to do? He has to crush those things. And sometimes, often, almost always, that is a painful thing for us. Hmm. So that... He wants us to learn, by the way, that he only has our best interest at heart. That when we drift off in the directions of our flesh, we're only hurting ourselves. And so he does, it's not that he's, he's not a legalist, you see. He's already dealt, as far as the court in heaven, as far as the certificate of debt, which was hostile to us, he destroyed that at the cross. He's not going to hold our sins against us. However, in this life, when, we are, when our sinful behavior is getting in the way of our growing and getting closer to the goal, he's going to deal with that. You know, the people that say, well, grace means, you know, do whatever you want. It absolutely does not. Titus says, no, the grace of God has appeared so that we could become made holy, like we sang in the song today. Right? Save from wrath and make us pure. And we can't forget the second part. That's what he's at work doing now. So even though the glory of Christ was the last thing on the minds of these saints in Corinth, that was still what God was going to do with them. God is faithful. His faithfulness was sorely tested in the case of the church at Corinth. But God's faithfulness prevailed then, and it will always prevail. Write it down. And write this down too, since God will be faithful to confirm us to the end, it means this, God will use any means necessary to get us across that finish line. Say it with me, any means necessary. So, on the one hand, that's a comfort. On the other hand, what we're dealing with is the shepherd's rod. He's got a staff. So we're willing to be led voluntarily, say, you know what, I know that you love me, Lord, I, I love you, and whatever it is that i got to change in my life or do in my life, I'm on board, I'm, I'm on this race, I get it. Or you can say, you know what, I still want to do my own thing for a while. I, 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 I might get serious in the future about your word, Lord, but you know, right now, man, i got a lot going on. You know, I, I, I really do. I got problems, Lord, you know. Ironic, right? <laughs> it's like the only solution is uh, where they don't want to go. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, let's say you're in the 1850s, and you're a general, and uh, you're fighting a war, and a salesman comes by, and he wants to bring to you the B-52 bomber, right, in the 1850s. And he's knocking on the door. He says, hey, listen, I just need a minute of your time. He says, go away. I'm too busy fighting a war. Yeah, that's what happens to us. We have problems. We push away the very thing that will solve it for us. But God is faithful. He'll use any means he has to to get us across the finish line and to achieve the goal of being presented blameless and being confirmed to the end. But any means necessary includes reproving us. Remember that? Pointing out our faults. We don't like that. Who here loves it when somebody points out their fault? No hands? Okay. No, it hurts. It causes us to feel we're not so great as we thought, you know. And then he goes to the next step. Remember, he rebukes when necessary, which means to warn us with the threat of consequences. 
That's the next step. And then after that, the third step is to discipline us in whatever way that we need it to overcome the obstacle that we put in there in our path. Now, here in the case of Corinth, I want you to know this. What God used in order to get them across the finish line, the means that he used in reproving and rebuking and disciplining was Paul, and in particular, the pen of Paul. That was what really administered the bitter medicine. And believe you me, from somebody who studies the Bible quite a bit, it, it will convict you and knock you down when it has to. And it's designed to do that. It's designed to humble us at times. It's designed to say, listen, you know, you're going wrong in that area. You're not telling yourself that. You know, probably nobody in your life, unless you have a real faithful brother or sister in Christ, they'll do it. But the Word of God always does it when necessary. By the way, get ready, because this book in particular will have something that will, that will be the finger of God pointed at you, pointed at me. That's how he does it. We should be grateful that he does. I mean, if, if we're not open to God's word doing that, changing our hearts, humbling us, getting us to change our ways and realize we're wrong in an area or a path, if we don't let the word of God do that, then we could end up where some of the saints in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians ended up. He said, those of you that are not discerning the body, that don't understand that you are all members of one another, members of the body of Christ. When you gather together for the Lord's Supper, that's what we're all about here. We're celebrating the unity of the body of Christ and we're bringing to mind his death until he comes. But when you come and week after week and Sunday after Sunday or whatever they were doing back then, and you do the opposite of that, when you come in here and you stir up the rivalries, when the rich all stay together and have the great food and they let the poor, you know, in a corner somewhere with nothing, which is the very opposite, you know, it's a finger in the eye of the Lord when he says, I want you united. He says, you keep doing that. And guess what? A number of you will be sick and at some point you'll even die. Now that's discipline. And yet he will go to that length in order to, what? Get us to the finish line. Never forget that. When, when you realize that God has confronted you with something, and then you've got something that hurts, realize why. He's not punishing you. He really isn't. He's disciplining you. But he has a goal in mind. He has the end result. All discipline in the moment is painful, but in the long run, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And by the way, that's what blameless means, is to have the fruit of righteousness. And he'll use what he has to. But there's something else here, and it surfaces again and again in this letter. And it's this. What if the letter wasn't written? What if the saints simply remained in their divisions, simply remained in their ugly fleshliness? What would happen then? Well, here's what's really significant. Here's what God is really concerned about. Because he he knew, and Paul knew, that if they remained in that place, divisions, fleshliness, they would fail in their calling. They were called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Think about this. Fellowship with the Son of God as one body. That's how we approach Him, really, as one body, Right? We have the head, he's the head, we have different members, we're all different members with different functions. But at the end of the day, that's the united body that can succeed in our calling. By the way, he wasn't talking about an individual calling here. He was talking about the calling of the group, of the body. They would fail as a group because they're divided, because they're winking at each other's sinfulness and fleshliness, they would fail. Now, what about that? Well, it's not just them that would fail, but the message of the gospel would be discredited. That's what was ultimate in the Lord's desire and goal in having Paul write the first letter to the Corinthians. We will see this again and again and again as we study this letter. For example, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. I want you to see what this really looks like. Why Paul gets upset 
at certain things that are going on. In fact, everything that's going on that he knew about, that it was reported to him, that was contained, remember, in that letter that the, that the church at Corinth sent Paul. He got worked up about a lot of things. Now, one of the things is here in 1 Corinthians 6. And, and so, so when Paul, you know, and he'll have to do this, defends his apostleship, when he vigorously says, no, I've been the one sent to you by Christ. He's not defending himself. You know, he understood who he was. The worst sinner who ever lived. That wasn't the issue. You know what the issue was? Defending the message. That's, what, that's where Paul saw everything. He says, I'm here to deliver the message to you and to the, to the people across the Roman Empire. That's where his eyes were. So here in, in chapter 6, if you remember, and I don't expect you to, but I do expect you to be reading the letters so that this will start to click. You see, men were going to prostitutes. And we saw that that was not what it is today, that there were actually temples to false gods. Aphrodite, the goddess of love, was the big one in Corinth. Remember on the hill was the temple with Aphrodite's? That's her temple. Well, it turns out that because she was the goddess of love, her temple had the women of love, if you could put it that way. Love, not really, but the women of sex. They're prostitutes that, that's tied together. I want you to think about that. You're brought up in a false religion that ties together worship of a god with sexual promiscuity. And that's what they were doing. They were doing what they always had done. They were doing what their daddies had done. They were doing what they were seeing all around them. And Paul is going to rebuke them for that. Why? This is why. It was not simply the fleshly sin itself. You know, that's what we tend to focus on. How could they? How horrible that is. You know, down the ages, we're shaking our finger at them. You know, how could you possibly do this? Well, well, Paul kind of did that too. But it wasn't for the sin itself only. It was for what the sin revealed about them. Let's take a look at that. 1 Corinthians 6, 15. Here's the issue. The first thing that he says is what? Do you not know? Do you not know what? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You see, he, he, he sees what's going on. They're using their bodies for the wrong purpose. But the worst part of it was that they didn't know, it hadn't sunk in yet, that their bodies are members of Christ. And so the prostitute thing was just a sign of that. It was an indicator of that. But it wasn't really the ultimate thing that Paul was upset about. He's like, you guys are not facing and understanding the basics about being a Christian. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Can you see how when you see... See, see, they're just looking at their lives and they're like, well, I'm kind of new to this Christianity thing and I know there's some stuff over there that i got to change, but, eh, you know, I'll get to it. But Paul said, no, you cannot look at it that way. Because you have to understand who you are right now. This isn't a matter of you eventually getting around to anything. It's a matter of the fact that from the moment you believed in Christ, you were a member of His body. And so, since you're a member of His body... How can you take the member of your body and give it to a prostitute? And man, when you see it in that light, it changes everything. This is what I mean about being rebuked by the Word of God. Again and again and again. You're in an area of fleshliness. And you're like, well, it's not perfect. God forgives me. Grace, grace. And then all of a sudden the Word of God sets out that, that opposite that you're living in. On the one hand, you're saying you're a Christian. On the other hand, you're doing that. And that's not legalistic. What it's saying is, is that you don't see who you and every member that you're associated with really are. If you did, you'd stop that. Remember, walk by means of the Spirit. What is the Spirit doing? It's taking the Word of God and allowing it to dwell deeply in us. Walk by that, and trust me, you won't carry out those desires of the flesh. You won't want to do it anymore. It'll literally make you ill to think about that. When you think about, wait a minute... My body is a member of Christ, and I'm going over here. What am I doing? Christ is over there, and he's saying, what are you doing? And when you see that, when you know that, that's what changes things. Do you not know? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. 
Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? See, see, in terms of sex, God designed it how? That the two, husband and wife, may become one flesh. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So flee immorality. Why? Because it's bad and God's going to punish you. No. Because you don't know who you are. When you see that you're a member of the body of Christ, then you will flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know? That's the first, third time he's saying this in this section. Do you know not? Now here's a new thing that they didn't. By the way, they, they learned it, but they didn't know it. You can hear things, but you don't know them. You don't, you don't make them a part of how you think. You don't, you don't make them how your heart has been rebuilt and renewed so that you really, that's who I am now. Old things have passed away. All things are new. Well, they heard that, uh, but they didn't know it. And that's what he's pointing out to them. They should have. Remember, we saw in the book of Acts that he spent a year and a half in Corinth. A year and a half. And by the way, he was an apostle. And he would, he would teach night and day. So in a year and a half, they learned these things over and over and over again. I mean, there were other places like Thessalonica where he only stayed a few weeks. A year and a half is a pretty long time in terms of Paul's ministry. All right. One other thing that they, that they demonstrated they hadn't let sink in yet. That's in verse 19. Do you not know that your body not only is it a member of Christ, but it is also a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? So, so the point is, is that the next time these people are walking into a pagan temple, and they walk in there, with, and what's top of mind is, my body's a member of Christ. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. A temple. All of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute, what am I doing here? Wait a minute, who is this prostitute anyway? Wait a minute, no, I'm out of here. You see, not because there's a cop or, or the elder like looking at them and saying, hey, what are you doing? No, because they know who they are. They know who they are. And who they are is totally incompatible with that behavior. And that's the issue. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? Who you have from God? A gift. And here's the kicker. Here's what we all need to learn. You are not your own. You are not your own. When you make choices... You know, make him in light of who you are. Now, you're not your own. You've been bought with the blood of Christ. You're his. And again, when you think of that, it'll change how you behave. When you realize that your very body, that you do the things you do with, good or evil, that you used to present the members of your body to unrighteousness, to sin, but now you're called to present the members of your body alive to God and your instruments of righteousness. Remember, you know, that's Romans 6. That's who you are. So this isn't, a, this isn't just a matter of what the world may think. You know, they, oh, believe me, there's legalists in the world just like in the church. And they may come down on you hard, but that's not the reason. The reason is because you know who you are. Your body is a member of Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, you and you're, the temp, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. Verse 20. For you have been bought with a price. In other words... You're in slavery, and Christ freed you with his own blood. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And when you see that, when you get to that point in this whole you know, uh, process, the progression that he's laid out here, when you say, my body's a member of Christ, I'm one spirit with the Lord, the immoral man sins against his own body, My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. And then at the end, the command, therefore glorify God in your body. I want you to really take that away today. I want you to take away, I mean, everything here, but especially that, again, it is not just, hey, this is what you shouldn't do, 
But it's really more about this is where you really have to be, realizing that your body now has one purpose. It's not pleasure. It's not slothfulness. It's not being better than somebody else because you did more push-ups. No, it's one thing. Glorify God with your body. Again, I want you to take away that today. But it starts with the question he keeps answering, asking. Do you not know? That's where it starts. That's why we gather together to hear the Word of God preached. And by the way, if I could say it, and I will say it again and again and again. After all, he told them these things. But they didn't sink in the first time or the second time or the third time. They had to hear it. Clearly, they had to hear it even more. Because even here, they were still fleshly. They were acting no different from the unbeliever. And the solution is not chastising them only. The solution is not them, you know, fasting or whatever. Confessing all their sins day and night. No. The solution is, you better know who you are. Know who you are. Do you not know? We have to ask ourselves the same question. Don't we know who we are? Or in other words, what were you thinking? That's what Paul's really asking. What were you thinking? And the answer is, maybe you weren't. Maybe you were. That's the problem. You're not thinking. You see, remember, we just saw, though. Look at this. They've been given gifts of great knowledge. Don't forget that. God had empowered them to know these things supernaturally. They would be his instrument by knowing these things and be able to speak them to to evangelize others. That was the goal, and yet they're misusing it. Why? Because they were still ignorant. And let me tell you something. They were willfully ignorant. What do I mean by that? I mean, it wasn't that they never heard it. It's that they pushed it away. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to be confronted with that. See, they didn't know it. They just heard it. They were willfully ignorant. They didn't really want to think about the fact that they are in fellowship with Christ now. It hadn't sunk in yet that their bodies were members of Christ. They blocked that out of their minds so they could keep on doing what they wanted to do. That's what a lot of people do. That's why, as Paul will say in 2 Timothy, that there will be people in the end times who will collect Teachers, after their own desires, that will tickle their ears and they will, be, they will turn away from the truth and be turned towards the myths. That's what it means to be willfully ignorant. It, they, they blocked out of the things they didn't want to hear because they knew if they really sunk in, they wouldn't be able to keep doing the things they really wanted to do. By the way, let's not kid ourselves. Okay? We're no match for our flesh either. If we go in that direction, it will put us in prison again. And so the only solution is to hear the word of God, let it dwell deeply, let it push you in the direction of walking by means of the Spirit, and then you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. Christ redeemed them with his blood. And not only to wipe away their sins, that is absolutely the number one reason why he died for them, but he also died for them so that they would henceforth go forward and glorify God in their bodies. He gave up his body for us so that we could glorify his Father in our body. Isn't that simple? Remember, I tell you again and again, the, the, the answers are always simple. The way in which the Father wants us to go is simple. The gospel is simple. You see, we complicate things when we don't want to deal with the simplicity of devotion to Christ because that forces us to change how we think. But it's simple. So, okay, so I wanted you to get the big picture today, at the beginning, because it will explain why the divisions in Corinth that we're about to look at were so destructive. And why? Because there's so much more at stake than Paul simply wanting the saints to get along with each other. I mean, that is lofty goal after all, but there's more to it, right? In other words, it's not about Rodney King, it's about the King of Kings. You know, Rodney came, we forgot, I don't know, some people weren't born when Rodney. The terrible riots in Los Angeles, Rodney King had been beaten badly by the police, and it's getting so out of control that he has to go on television, and he says, can't we all get along? And that's important, but not as important as this, the growth of the gospel message, how it's spreading. That was what's at stake. Paul selectively went to certain cities 
and set things up so that they themselves would then have the word proclaimed in their geographic area. If they were divided, if they were still no different from an unbeliever in how they behave, then that wasn't going to happen. As a matter of fact, we're even, even worse than that. Because Paul was the one who really was going out everywhere and spreading the gospel. They would also interfere with his ministry. And, and God can't have that. He's not going to let that stand for too long. All right, so I hope you see this clearly now that you know what to look for as we now turn to 1 Corinthians 1. You don't have to turn, do you? It's the next verse, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 1.10. All right. Maybe you have to turn. If your Bible ended in verse 9, I suppose that could happen. But 1 Corinthians 1.10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this. Each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, Peter. Hey, oh, we're, in, we're of Christ over here. And we'll see why that, what that really means, by the way, in a minute. Verse 13, title of today's message. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptize none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Why? So that none of you would say that you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. He's with them, so he probably reminded him, Hey, you know, Peter, Paul, you, you did baptize my family. But beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. Why? For Christ did not send me, the apostles of the Gentiles, to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel, and not in cleverness of speech either, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Now, verse 10 is the topic sentence for this paragraph. Good writing is usually that way. In grammar school, they taught you that. And when you have a paragraph, the first sentence should lay out what it's about. Same here. Apparently, Paul had a similar Greek teacher to my English teacher in seventh grade. That's what he does in his writing. Now I exhort you, brethren, that by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. I want to tell you something about one of the words, and that is katartito. It means that it means to be perfectly joined together. See, see the, the phrase be made complete, when he writes that, he says, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. There's something else here, and I want you to see it. The Greek word really means to be perfectly joined together, be restored, to be united, to come back as one. The unity of the Spirit. I don't, he wants us to preserve that. Okay, that's what this word really means. So in other words, verse 10 can read, does really read, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree <coughs> that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united. How? In the same mind and in the same judgment. By the way, that really means purpose. doesn't mean you're going around judging everybody. It means purpose. That you be united in the same mind and in the same purpose. That was what Paul was sent to do in this letter. By the way, notice he's exhorting the brethren in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the one that they were called into fellowship with. Jesus Christ, the one who will confirm them to the end. The one whose revelation, the rapture, they eagerly await. The one in whom... They were enriched in everything, in all speech and all knowledge. Paul exhorts them. Exhorts the saints to do what? Well, it's right there. That you all agree. Agree about what? That there be no divisions among you, and that instead you would be united. United in what? In the same mind and in the same purpose. 
So, so really, if we want to understand what's going on here, we have to answer these questions. What does Paul mean by the same mind? What purpose does God have for the saints? Chapter 2, verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord? That we will instruct Him. But we have the mind of Christ. When He says that you should be single-minded, that you should all have the same mind, He means that. He means have the mind of Christ. In other words, they weren't supposed to get together in a powwow and figure out what they agree on and what they disagree on and say, well, we'll just stick with what we agree on. He's saying, no, it's really not that way. It's really all of you should be hearing God's word together so that you all, as a group, have the one mind, the mind of Christ. It's really the same thing as what he said in chapter 6. I want you to understand that you're one body in Christ. I want you to understand that the Holy Spirit dwells in you, that you're a temple. And now I want you to understand that you've been given the mind of Christ himself, the way that Christ thinks. That's how you're to be united. And in that, you will see your purpose. And Paul will keep on revealing the mind of Christ again and again and again in this letter. So in other words, when we're united, I'm going to use us now. Let's go 20 centuries to us. When we're united because we're like-minded, in other words, it's not like we dress the same or any of that. No, because we're like-minded. We think the same. And when that means, when we're like-minded because we're thinking like Christ, you see, when we understand these things together, when we learn these things together, and we're all thinking the thoughts of Christ, when we're united because of that, then we'll be united in God's purpose for us. So it's unity, thinking like Christ, God's purpose for us. And that's, that's, that's how this all connects. Okay, verse 11, as we move along. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you, each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I of Christ. You see, Paul received evidence that the people in Corinth were quarreling. What was it? It was this. He had learned that each man was pledging allegiance to his own apostle or teacher. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. And one group actually was pledging the fact that they were independent from any teacher at all. I of Christ. Now you might say, wow, I didn't get that when I read it. <laughs> no, because you see, you see, people always mask what's really going on with a platitude that no one can argue with. You know, it's like the people that say, the Holy Spirit told me. And as soon as they say that, apparently we just have to take whatever they say after that. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Now, now sometimes he does tell us. But we always should check against the body, the, the, the word of God. Okay. In any event, that's what they were doing. They're saying, you know, we don't need any teacher. By the way, by doing this, they were proving that they were obviously not of one mind. I mean, how can a congregation be of one mind when they don't even hear the same preaching together? And by the way, it's not that, you know, Apollos was better or Paul was better than Peter. No, it's not that at all. It's just that Christ had chosen Paul to be their apostle. Now, we have it easier today because all we got to do is follow Paul's writings, you see. That's what we're called to do. But back then, obviously the letter of 1 Corinthians hadn't been written. And so it really was tied up in the apostleship of Paul. Christ chose Paul to be his apostle. Christ sent Paul to Corinth. They are to be united in the teaching that Paul gave them. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And yet, at this point in time, people are saying, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Peter. I'm of Christ. 
you know, I'm a Christ man. Hey, Lord, you didn't really need to send an apostle to me because, you know. Oh, yeah. By the way, they needed the apostleship of Paul more than the rest of them. And even in a subtle way, the ones that were saying, I have Paul. Because they were joining in in the disunity. You see it? Oh, listen. No, you see, what was really going on is that these people were simply not inclined to be obedient to Paul's teachings and instructions. In fact, this church as a whole was challenging Paul and saying they didn't have the authority. How dare you rebuke us? I'm just going to say I'm of Apollos. Now, I don't want to take that. No, we have people today that kind of do the same thing. There's certain things they want to hear. And so what happens is they pass their shop. You know, it's kind of like uh, you have workout instructor. You have three of them, let's say, or whatever. And one of them is the order of, you know, chest on Monday, arms on Tuesday, uh, you know, endurance on Wednesday, you know, like Thursday, Friday. Well, another one does them in another order, and a third one does them in another order completely. And so what, what some people do is they say, you know, I'm really good at push-ups. I don't want to be challenged with, you know, sit-ups and running and all those other machines. I just want to do push-ups. So whoever's doing push-ups on Monday, I'm of them. Who's ever doing push-ups on Tuesday, I'm of them. And Wednesday, you get the idea. Now the problem with that is, is that the body's going to be, you know, not all out of joint, you know. And that, so that, we don't want to do that. It's not that, you know, this guy's better than that guy. That's the whole problem is that they thought that way. It's rather that God has provided, and God wants you to grow in all the areas. And really... You're only going to do that if you stick with a consistent form of teaching. I'm not going to make it personal. I'm not going to make it the man. But it's about a consistent teaching. It's about when, when we're in James, everybody's in James. We're all dealing with the things in James together. You see, that, that's how God really wants it. It doesn't have to be one man. There could be three or four, but they're all teaching on the book of Corinthians. Corinthians. So if I'm not here and somebody else is here, then that, it's not, that's not the issue. The man isn't the issue. You know, the teaching is the issue. But see, they weren't really challenging Paul. You know, they're challenging his message. They were saying, you know what? The Lord really didn't proclaim, allow you to proclaim the gospel. You made that up. So they were not simply rejecting Paul. They were rejecting what he preached. This is why they could ignore their teaching about the body of Christ. This is why they could ignore the teaching about the indwelling of the Spirit. And these were things, by the way, that Paul revealed direct, of Jesus, revealed directly to Paul, not Peter or Apollos. So by rejecting Paul and his message, they were really rejecting Christ and his message. So when you're doing that, and that's really your motivation, how do you cover your tracks? Don't, don't make it about the word of God anymore. Let's make an issue of men. Let's pretend that really it's about the men, that some of them, you know, are ah, not so good for me. And I'll make the issue men rather than the word, and then you can ignore what the word says. That's what they were doing. And, you know, some of them were saying, you know, really, if you look at it objectively, Apollos is much more gifted than the other guys. After all, the book of Acts in chapter 18 says he's eloquent. He's mighty in the scriptures. He's fervent in spirit. There are whole denominations, by the way, that go according to one of these. You know, there are some that are fervent in spirit and they're talking in tongues, the women and the men all together, and they're, you know, slaying the spirits and all that stuff, right? I'm not saying Apollos did. But, yeah, they were impressed by that list, some of them. They were looking for the eloquent preacher, the one who's mighty in the scriptures, which is great, by the way. But it's not, not the man, right, and the fervent in spirit. On the other hand, the apostle Peter, that's Cephas. Well, you know what, Paul? He walked with Christ when he was here. You didn't. He'd been apostle way before you. Why do we have to listen to you? By the way, they ignore the fact that Paul saw Christ in a way that Peter never did, which is after he was seated with the Father and came to him in chapter 9 of Acts. All right. On the other hand, humanly speaking, this was what Paul tells us, what was going on with him when he showed up. He was with them in weakness. He was with them in fear and in much trembling. Now, here's the thing about that. See, see sometimes it's easier to say, I just want the eloquent one. Because you know what? I can just sit there and enjoy how he puts phrases together. 
But when someone comes to you like that, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, it causes you to ask the question, why? Why is he in weakness? Why is he in fear? Why is he in much trembling? Because he understood the implications of his message. And that was, that was foremost. He did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom. And in their eyes, therefore, many of them, he paled in comparison to Apollos. Apollos had the gifts that they wanted and prized more than any other. And I have to say here that Paul respected and admired Peter and Apollos. His quarrel was not with them. Verse 13 again. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Oh, were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you. Except Crispus and Gaius. So that none would say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize the household of Stephanas, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. But Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Paul is worked up at this point. Often, we can spot him being worked up because he, he, he turns to sarcasm. <laughs> you know, he, he uses that because he really wants to get his point across. And it's a very effective way to do that. He basically, when you think about it, he asks them three ridiculous questions. Has Christ been divided? How could Christ be divided? He's the God-man forever. He asks him that. He says, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? I mean, they didn't know much, but they certainly knew that Paul wasn't crucified. Jesus was. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. Hopefully not, right? They were baptized in the name of Jesus. So they're saying at that point, well, duh, Paul, obviously the answer is no. And Paul would say, well, duh, yourself. Because if you follow your thinking to its logical conclusion by making this about men, that's really where you end up. You forget about Christ and you insert the man of your choice in there instead. You are making men the issue instead of Christ. Never do that. Never do that. Always keep your mind on Christ. So he's saying get back to reality, folks. And Paul uses himself, notice. He says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul was not crucified, was he? You see, he didn't, he didn't want to be the issue about men. He didn't want to have any perception that he was adding to the disagreements by inserting any other man. Hey, you weren't baptized in the name of Paulos. No, he uses himself. And he was also telling the eye of Paul crowd that he disapproved of them as well. And finally, in verses 14 to 16... We learn one other thing about the disunity, and that is that he who baptized whom had become another point of contention for the brethren, another way of division. And Paul is really simply saying, stop making a big deal out of your baptism. As if yours were somehow better than your brother's because of the man who dunked you under the water. By the way, the baptism in the church age is not water baptism, it's spirit baptism. Because everything about us is heavenly, and all of the things that unite us are God's work, not man's. And of course, this wouldn't be the last time that the church would be divided by water baptism, by the way. Wars were fought over water baptism. Well, I'm sprinkling, well, I'm infant, well, you know. They were straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. They were fighting about baptism, and that only made the divisions worse. There's only one baptism for the church. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 to 6. But the worst thing about it was this. They were oblivious the whole time to the real purpose of their calling. That's why he said, Christ didn't send me to baptize. That's what he sent Peter to do, the apostles of the Jews. He sent me to preach the gospel. Let's get back to business, he's telling them. He's saying... Our business is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And your behavior proves that you've completely lost sight of the power of the cross. 
You're boasting in the wrong things completely. As a matter of fact, you're tearing apart the body of Christ. You are foolish. You're obsessed with boasting about things that fleshly people boast about in the world. You're no different from the unbeliever. You know, they're boasting out there in their gods and their wise teachers in order to gain an advantage over others. Your boast should only be in the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 31. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not notice this carefully, not in cleverness of speech. The gospel should never be presented in cleverness of speech. Why? Because that will mask the simplicity of it. The gospel is simple, straightforward. A child can understand it. You're a sinner. Christ died for your sins. And he was raised from the dead. And you believe that and you're saved. Don't flower it up or have 30 minutes. and No. Boom. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you use cleverness of speech, you're actually robbing. You're robbing the preaching of the gospel of its power. The stakes couldn't be any higher. He's saying, if you keep interfering with my apostleship to preach the gospel, you are making the cross of Christ void. There can be no stronger language and convicting language than that. You're making the cross of Christ to no effect. It's of no importance to you. You're neutralizing it. It's evil to use cleverness of speech in proclaiming the gospel because then all of attention is on you. It's the same reason why you shouldn't give your testimony. All the attention should be on Christ. And by the way, not only is it evil to use cleverness of speech, it's also evil to be impressed with that instead of the simplicity of the gospel. All of this would have consequences not only for Corinth, but for the larger mission that Paul had to evangelize in Greece and beyond. It's about God's purpose. And on a regular basis, we too need to just step back and ask the question, what is God's purpose for us? What is it? I'm not going to answer that today. I want you to think about it. Do you realize how important our unity is to God achieving His purpose in us and through us? And then we should absolutely ask this question. This is where I'll close. What are the threats to our unity? When you think about that. What are the threats to our unity? And what has God given us to deal with these threats? The stakes couldn't be any higher. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good gifts. We thank you for the gifts, the spiritual gifts. We need to know that they are used to join the body together for the benefit of one another. We thank you most of all for the simplicity of the gospel. Christ died for our sins because we were sinners. He was buried and he was raised from the dead three days later. So that whoever believes in him, he died for all. Whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. Father, today, help us take to heart what we've learned in 1 Corinthians 1 here. Help us to focus on your purpose for us. Focus on the heavenly things. All our blessings are heavenly. And to be aware of the things that could divide us and to really take action in our hearts because that's where it all plays out. Using your word, which is living and powerful. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We get together again on Thursday evenings at 7. The last week, and I promise everybody who's been there, last week on last times. All right, but we're at the church. We're looking at, wait a minute, what's the future of the church? In this age and in the ages to come. So it's very exciting. It's about, it's about us. All of till now has been about the Jews and the, and, and the Gentile nations. The prophecies in the Old Testament Gospel of Matthew, the book of Revelation. Now we're finally going to say, well, what about us? Where, where do we stand? What's our future look like? So please join us. I want to mention that uh, if you have any questions today about the Bible, about the message, the gospel, anything really, I invite you to speak with me. I'll just be hanging out over here. I have my Bible in my hand. I'm the guy with the tie. So you come on up and talk to me.
All right, let's just close again. Father, thank you for this, this wonderful news. Thank you that you will never give up on us, that you are faithful, you're our Father, so you know how to perfectly deal with us when we need to be rebuked. You're there with your word when we need to be disciplined. You're there with your word. We thank you. And we would ask, Father, that we would less and less need the rod and more and more be guided by the staff of your word about our life in the Spirit and in your Son. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. With that, you're dismissed. Enjoy this beautiful day. It's going to be one of the last, you know what I'm saying, before those dog days get started. So enjoy it.